If you repeat results, you are in the business that is diagonally opposite to innovation. You know, I've heard people say it's all about execution. Blackberry was executing really well. Trouble is, the world changed while they were busy executing. The most powerful catalyst for getting people into the right frame of mind to do something different and to innovate is actually the sharing of stories. Welcome back to the Innovation Engine Podcast. On this episode, we'll be looking at how to go from idea to inception. Among the topics we'll discuss are how to evaluate which ideas to actually act on, whether there's such a thing as bad feedback and moving ideas through the incubation process, and whether voice technology is one antidote to screen-based thinking that may help save us from ourselves. Here with us today to discuss all that and more is Golden Krishna. Golden is a design strategist at Google, where he works on a horizontal future team across all variants of Android and Chrome, including Pixel, TV, Auto, Chromebooks, and Wear, to push computing forward with new ideas that can ship in the next two to three years. Part of Golden's charge in this role is to bring cohesion, innovation, and long-term strategy to the world's most popular operating system. In addition to being deemed one of the world's best designers by Fast Company, Golden is the author of The Best Interface is No Interface, a wildly funny and illuminating read that makes a very persuasive case that there's an app for that is the most insidious advertising tagline ever written. And no, it's not just because he works at Google and is an alumnus of Samsung. If you'd like to hear more from Golden on why that is, turn back the clock to the Innovation Engine from May 2015. I can promise you won't be disappointed by the episode. Without further ado, welcome back to the podcast, Golden Krishna. Thank you, Will. Thanks for being here. Exciting. Yeah, absolutely. So a lot has changed since we last spoke in 2015. You're now working in R&D at Google, which I have to imagine means you're pretty excited to wake up and go to work in the morning. Just to give listeners an idea of your work and how it fits into what we'll be talking about today, how do you spend your work days now? I mean, it's kind of crazy. You're right. I mean, I wake up in the morning. I'm oftentimes coming down to the Mountain View office, and there are 30,000 people that work in the Mountain View office alone. Huge. Probably more people than I'll meet in my entire life. Um, <laughs> I can't imagine meeting 30,000 people. So there's so many things going on. So many people, some interesting ideas here and there, things that are things that are sprouting up, products that are living and dying. And so there's a ton of conversation. You could definitely spend your whole day just listening and not actually creating. Um, but I come in and I work on Android and Chrome, like you mentioned, what I think of as sort of Google's operating system. And a lot of progress has been made in those two areas. But one of the things that happens at Google, at Apple, at Microsoft, is that teams tend to think in these sort of release cycle terms. We typically have a one-year release cycle. That's not true with Chrome, but with Android. And with iOS, you see a similar pattern every year, a new release. But I was brought on to a team to think about how we can think a few years ahead. So we think about two to three years ahead. And 
that allows us to do things more ambitiously, allows us to think a little more outside the box. Now, one year sounds like a really long time, and it is in tech talk. But thinking two to three years means that you can really set the stage for some big things to happen down the road. Yeah. So so your job descriptions over the years have pretty consistently sounded something like what you just described. And I'll, I'll paraphrase, working with brilliant people to create new products and services that will ship within 24 to 36 months. So if we're looking at the very front end of that timeline, when an idea is just that, what needs to happen in your mind before a decision is made? Okay, this is something that has legs and we're going to devote some resources to it to see what we come up with. You know, it's funny when you say that question about my job description, it's absolutely true. And when I was working at Zappos Labs, which is where I worked before I was just at Google, I talked to this designer in the interview. Um, his name was Nick. And I asked him what the challenges of the job are. Because when you tell someone that you have the ability to work on uh, a clean slate of brand new products and services, it sounds like a dream job. And I was asking this designer, Nick, and he said, you know, what's really hard about this job is someone says, hey, can you just sit in this chair and innovate? And it can be totally paralyzing um, when you start doing it at first. And there's a couple of different stages of what's going on. As I've been doing this from company to company to company, doing it at Samsung and Zappos and, and now at Google, I've been coming up with a number of different techniques to, to, let me, to let me do this thing. But the question you're asking, how do we actually convince someone that this idea has legs, is, I would say, probably like the, the second stage, right? So the first stage is coming up with that really novel, great idea, which is hard and paralyzing on its own. There's so many people we've brought into the process and say, okay, sit in this chair and innovate. And you think you're going to have this freedom and ability to do so many things, but actually really struggle. But once you've come up with that good idea, how do you get to the point where you're convincing other people? I sometimes think, and, and this, this might sound like a big company thing to say, what I'm about to say, but I really think this is true. And even in slightly smaller organizations, all the way down to maybe like a, a thousand person uh, company, you have to kind of go around and convince lots of people that this is a good idea. I mean. If, if I were to work at Apple and I were to go to convince Tim Cook that something is a good idea, he may disseminate that to the rest of the teams at Apple. But if you don't have their passion on board and they aren't committed to the idea, then you're not going to get a great end product. They're going to come to work and they're going to just take a top-down directive and, and just pump out something as fast as they can. When we feel like we have a good idea. When I feel like we've come across something that can really change how computing operates today, we go around to different teams that are impacted by that decision. And I like to think of it a bit as, as passing a bill through Congress. You go through and you say, I've got universal healthcare and it sounds great and everybody's going to get free healthcare. Um, and then you run into Mississippi and they say, well kind of care more about gun rights than I do healthcare, And you have to sort of wheel through all these different issues. And in the end, you may end up with something a little more watered down than what you wanted. But it's all part of that sort of messy process of, of getting there and trying to build lots of momentum towards that idea. Again, you can always go to the top 
and convince people down. But that doesn't tend to be as effective. I don't think you get as good of a work product and end experience as when you have the people that are making it really inspired by that work and feeling like they're coming along with you on that ride. Yeah. So I know Google is a big place, but Google Ventures design sprint process has gotten to be pretty well known in the tech space and beyond. Uh, there's a book out by Jake Knapp, who I think used to be at, at Google Ventures called Sprint that gives a deep dive into it. Is there also a specific process or formula that, that you and, and your teams follow in shepherding ideas to life? What's really, really hard is to tell you that there's one specific way. Right? <laughs> yeah. There are teams that do what we do um, at different places yeah. where all they do is they just run workshops for other teams where they ask them to question their, their fundamental assumptions. They say, you're working on a smartphone. It has a screen and it's a rectangle. Let's do a workshop where it's not a rectangle and it has no screen. Um, that's totally fascinating. And questioning those fundamental assumptions can lead to some really interesting results. Now, workshop-oriented thinking, which happens and we've done before on, on our team can lead to sort of teams coming up with their own ideas. And, and that's sort of one factor, right? So there's the internal brainstorming of these ideas are there, but they just haven't reached the surface. And you help people reach their potential to, to realize those ideas. And that exists, I think, across all organizations. I bet you, whether it's Amazon, um, a, a successful company like that, or Microsoft, or whoever you're talking about, there are tons of employees have great ideas that have just kind of, those ideas have fizzled away. And so internally, there tends to be people who get it and know where the, their products and their services are going. That's the easy route. That's the easy thing to do is kind of squeeze that orange and get that, and get that juice that you, those great ideas. But the more difficult route is going out into the field and observing people and patterns and not being obsessed with how they're using your service but the sort of ecosystem and the way in which they're using your service. Sure, we could do um, studies on keyboards all day and we could lead some interesting results. Absolutely, you could. But maybe we think more broadly about how communication works between individuals and we realize a leap forward that we can take. So there's internal, there's external, um, going out there and, and meeting people, talking to people, or just observing the world. And then I think there's sort of like another branch of sort of like trying to invent something um, on your own. Um, and that sort of can be like a team philosophy um, that we might have um, or that others might have that it kind of leads more to more thinking. I obviously um, wrote the best interfaces, no interface, which is a kind of philosophy that's out there. And these are all three of these are just different ways sort of seed ideas but there's a variety of ways to do it successfully. And there's certainly no one way. The design sprint process is great as far as trying to structure a week where you get a team together and generate some quick things. But it's not the only way. Um, there's a lot of techniques to get the best of out there. Yeah. So thinking through some of the ideas and projects that you've worked on at Samsung, Zappos, and now Google, how much would you say ideas change from the original time they're thought up to the point when you're actually ready to launch something? <laughs> I know it's hard to quantify, it's, right? No, it's a great question. I mean, you know, I think this is something I briefly wrote about in the book, but I think one of the great lies and the great fallacies across all of technology and innovation is the belief that when you see someone show some, some product on stage, that it is the, quote, latest and greatest. 
Because what you're seeing a company release is not necessarily the latest and greatest. It is the thing that has mutated to a point in which enough executives and people are ready to sign on, feel like it's safe enough, but adventurous enough. And that's what gets shown. You read a tech blog or you see some review on YouTube where they're trying to unbox a product and they're super excited. They're assuming that this is the best possible thing that the company could produce. Actually, the company could probably produce something a little bit differently, a little bit better, I bet. But this is the thing that worked. This is the thing that just got enough people to sign on. And whether it's marketing or, or someone who's just resistant to change or someone who's, who's been around that had made it a certain way and doesn't want to change that thing, there's a lot of road bumps that could happen along the way. I think it's completely naive to think that we design this beautiful experience and then it outputs into this beautiful experience into the world. It just doesn't. The sausage is not made that way. So yeah, there have been a <laughs> lot of things um, that I have worked on and they absolutely, I can't think of a single thing I've worked on that it went from original to shipping exactly as we presented, I don't know, in a, in a, in a deck or, or in some kind of prototype or something. There have been shorter things. One thing that I did when I was at Zappos is we did this RFID checkout system um, where we kind of had this pop-up shop and we tagged everything with RFIDs and people could just walk out and check out. Um, some of those ideas actually fed into Amazon's Lab 126 and helped influence the Amazon Go stores, which is super interesting. Um, we Our little experiment that led to a larger initiative at Amazon. But I can't... I can't predict what things are going to work and what things aren't. I bring up the RFID thing because when that was a super short timeline and we executed and we delivered and it came close to what we originally thought, but it wasn't exactly. Now, here I am in a role where we're thinking two to three years out, two to three years out, and we barely even know what's going to happen in two to three years. Even all the resources that we have, we, we're not sure. I mean, maybe something, I don't know, take a random technology, take um, 5G, right? Maybe in a few years, 5G is what we'll all be talking about and our phones will be so fast and amazing. Maybe in two years, no one will have 5G and 4G will still be there. And then we wasted all of our time on this particular project. I'm not saying, that's not even something we're doing. I'm just saying there's kinds of technology that exists out there um, that you could gamble on, but you're not really sure if it's going to be that thing. I think one of the interesting um, methods that we've been kind of doing is creating sort of alternate possible futures and seeing, hey, here's a menu of possibilities. We're not quite sure which of these is going to come true given the conditions that might be in the marketplace in two to three years. But if it is, I don't know, a 5G world, this is it. If it is a world in which you know people don't use cell phones anymore and they're all on their watches or whatever, this is that, that world. I think it's a little arrogant to say, that we know at this original point of thinking that everything is going to work so perfectly later on. I just don't see that correlation um, in that way happen very often. Yeah. And do you ever, you know, we, we hear a lot about feedback in the tech space and, and getting feedback from users to make sure that you're going down the right path. Do you ever encounter feedback or suggestions where you think, I understand where they're coming from, but I, I just fundamentally don't ag agree with how they see the world. <laughs> as a, I'm sure as a designer, you're not supposed to answer yes to that question. Right? <laughs> uh, I think the answer is all the time. Um, 
I think every, I mean, look, I come in the room and sure, I, I bring a smile to the presentation, but I come into the room to tell people that what they've been doing isn't good enough, that what they could be doing is so much greater. And that doesn't always go well. Why? Well, there are certain assumptions and certain theories um, that have led to the product being the way it is today. And if I say, hey, we can completely radical, radically change this product to be so much better in a few years, um, they're going to immediately question that because they've done the things they've done for a reason. I have had instances where I have showed solid user experience to people, sorry, user research to people, and they've looked at it and said, oh, that's not how I use it but that's not what I do. And you run into that old school problem of not being able to convince them or them trying to poke holes in the study that you've done. It's not easy. Those are just two small examples of yeah. lots of things that can go wrong. They're kind of limitless. They happen all the time. You know, what I like to do, or one of the approaches I like to take is, and a mistake, I'll tell you, a mistake I've made in my career is to present a sort of big idea in a room full of lots of people. That's kind of what you would assume is the case if you watch a movie where someone presents, I don't know, the first computer and there's all the executives in one room and, and, you, and you take the, you know, the cloth off the monitor and you say, this is a computer. This is a computer is going to look like. And everyone gives a round of applause or maybe kicks you out of the room depending on the, on the situation. Um, yes, how, far, how far into the movie you are. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's what we think, right? We're going to do for a big presentation. But that is a mistake I feel like I have made in the past where I brought all these decision makers together. Actually, what tends to work a lot better is to meet with a lot of those people individually, get their feedback. They're going to be more honest. They're going to be more open. And then eventually, maybe you have a presentation like that. But by that point in time, when everyone's gathered around, it's not their first time seeing it because every single person is going to have their own personal concerns. Um, and if you can address those in maybe teams of two or three or even a one-on-one, -on -one, um, it'll teach you a lot. And, and what I tend to do is sort of like go around on these sort of road shows where I try to like make all these different changes as I'm getting feedback. And you end up looking really smart in the end because you've taken their feedback, made it a lot better. And then you take the cloth off the computer. They've kind of seen it a little bit. They're kind of along with you for the ride. And when they look around the room and lots of other people are too, hey, that's one of the ways you can win. And I'm cue, not saying... Cue music and, <laughs> and credits. <laughs> cue music. And like, that's just one way of thinking about it is sort right. of divide and conquer, I guess, is what was a phrase you could use. Um, but you're trying to get, you know, I shouldn't make it sound like such battle terms, right? It's not like a, it's a win and loss. It's more like you're trying to understand everyone in the room you're trying to understand their point of view, and it's easier typically for them to express it in a smaller setting. Sure, definitely. So I'm sure there is no single one answer, but where did the ideas come from that you find yourselves working on most often nowadays? I, you know, it's funny. There are some just personality clicks that just tend to work. There are some teams who just feel like they're at the point in which they need change. And there are some teams who really need change, some products who re that really need to be completely altered and taken a leap forward and are utterly resistant to change. I'm talking about this at the luxury of working at a place with enormous scale. So it can almost pick and choose the people who are best to work with. And I think sometimes you can see how an organization works when you look through their software. 
when you see a wall between one product and the rest of them, or I don't know, some inability, some feature that launched on everything else, but one thing, you kind of get a sense of, wait, why is this product behind the others? It gives you a realization often of the internal politics. Is a revealing on the outer surface of the in, inner workings of the of the companies. Now, those relationships where people are open minded are so much easier. Those moments when teams are ready for change are are simple. That doesn't mean those are the only people that we end up working with. So the things I end up doing, I personally am just driven by what I think the customer needs. So if I think our users are really struggling with a certain thing, I push for it. And even if it's a difficult team, I'll push for it. Even if it's a difficult process or people, you'll see me being really persistent. But I end up probably working more on products and where the teams, where the engineers, the PMs, the directors, the management, the executives are more open-minded about change because they're easier to work with and they embrace that change more easily. That's a really personal, odd thing to say. But to be honest, I feel like that's what usually ends, that's where innovation usually ends up happening are on teams with good open cultures that understand that what they're doing isn't perfect. And what we present isn't perfect either. We're just trying to make it better. Um, and we're trying to make it better than what it is now. And that's an improvement. Okay, nice. So the last time we had you on, it was to talk about why the best interface is no interface. You're now working on a team that's responsible, at least in part, for building things that often appear on a mobile or desktop screen. So have you changed your stance on interfaces in the last three or four years? <laughs> you know, it's funny. When I first came to Google, they said, hey, look, this is the no interface guy. Let's just have him work on IoT stuff because that's what he's passionate about. And my role has expanded. I've been here for almost three years now. And so I touch a lot of different products. But you know, the thing that really motivates me and the thing that fits perfectly in line with my personal agenda and my personal philosophy of, of the best interfaces, no interface, is that an operating system is utilitarian at its core. If I worked at a company where, I don't know, monthly and daily actives were a core part of their business model, I would struggle, I think, sometimes to get people more addicted to technology, because that's just not what I'm about. But when you work on an operating system, if I can figure out a way that people spend, I don't know, instead of 20 minutes managing Chrome tabs, they did it for one minute. Or in Android, if it took them 20 steps to get something done, and now it was down to zero steps, that's going towards this vision of no UI and doing it at a place where people applaud that kind of thing. So if I show a way where we can help people use our OS less, um, in a way, that's a huge success. We don't want people to use the operating system settings menu or, or, or some other sort of functionality of launching, going between apps and managing windows, all those sorts of things that are core parts of an operating system. You know, we're, we're here to be a giant playing field for, for different applications to thrive. And so if we can allow them to thrive, if we can give them tools where they can help their users get things more done more quickly, we can help our OS help users get things more done more quickly, then those are successes. If I was somewhere else and working not on an operating system, I, I, 
name name a number of companies that are out there that are obsessed with daily actives. I don't think those presentations would work. I think if I showed efficiency, um, I think people would sort of take a step back and say, that's not what we're really about. We're really about trying to push more time spent on this particular thing. Now, daily actives don't have to be time spent. Um, daily actives could be people just accomplishing their goals. And that happens in the background. It happens quickly. And that could be a daily active user. But that time spent metric um, is something that I think is, is probably a better phrase to use to describe how it's really nice to be on the side of the coin um, that is just trying to help people get things done really quickly. And I can't say that's true across the tech world today. Yes, I I get notifications daily to update software on a operating system that will go unnamed. <laughs> I, I do like it. I just wish I could not click on the same thing every day. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so a few more questions and a few will be rapid fire. I have to ask one about voice. It's exploded onto the scene in the last few years with products like Amazon Echo and Google Home. Do you see voice as one logical manifestation of moving toward getting away from our over-reliance on screens? You know, it's funny. Voice has a lot of promise to it. And, and as I see our sort of UI-dominated world, I see a lot of ways we can sort of chop down that total amount of screen time that we spend. And one of those techniques is voice. Um, but voice presents a huge number of challenges. You know, before we had graphical user interfaces, um, we had command line interfaces where you set, you know, a C prompt, an MS-DOS, and you try to type in something, and you're trying to remember those commands, uh, dir, exe, whatever the sort of things that you need to type in. But it didn't always go well because if you didn't have the commands memorized, you couldn't necessarily control in the way that you wanted. So when we saw buttons exposed, when we saw windows, we saw WYSIWYG, it felt, felt like a revolution. Then when you go to voice, in some ways we're going back command line, right? We're guessing. There's this ultimate promise that these voice assistants will understand everything that we say. But we know that that's not true. You can say a lot of phrases that voice assistants will just end up with web results in a sort of dissatisfying, not so great way. However, there are a core number of things that it can do really well. Um, in some cases, really dumb and simple things like setting a timer or making a quick sort of speaker phone connection between one um, sort of smart speaker and another, sort of quick intercom things. Playing music is probably the most obvious thing that these sort of smart speakers can do through our voice commands. And those things feel delightful. Those things feel nice. And those things cut down our screen time in ways that make sense. However, there is a limit to that voice technology. I'm excited about the potential. I think that it can nicely eat into that screen time. But it's not going to be um, sort of an end-all solution for so many of the things that we get done. Okay, so a few rapid-fire questions. You're the first person, the first guest we've tried these out on. Uh, so right. no, no pressure. When do your best ideas come to you? Morning. Okay. Um, when word answers. Is that right? Is that what you want in the hot seat? Yeah, that's good. That's good. <laughs> uh, when do we get to see another book pinned by Golden Krishna? Hopefully in the next five years. <laughs> Uh, okay. And now that you're back working on screens, at least some of the time, have you softened your stance on dropdowns? <laughs> Absolutely not. 
All right, that was two words, but we'll let you by. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, Golden, uh, great to have you back. Thanks so much for taking some time out of your busy schedule to talk with us. Uh, great talking with you about getting from idea to inception. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Great topic. Absolutely. If you'd like to learn more about Golden Krishna, you can follow him on Twitter at, at Golden Krishna. That's K R I S H N A. His book, The Best Interface is No Interface, is available on Amazon.com and in bookstores around the country and the world. It was also the subject of the Innovation Engine podcast episode 63 back in May of 2015. So be sure to check that episode out if you haven't already. To order the book and learn how we can work to end our slavery to screens, you can visit the book's website at www.nointerface.com. And you can also visit Golden's personal website at www.goldenkrishna.com. The Innovation Engine podcast is brought to you by Three Pillar Global, a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. Head to www.3pillarglobal.com to learn more about our services. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, and Spotify, and we post extensive show notes for each episode on the Three Pillar website at threepillarglobal.com slash podcast. That's three with the number three. Don't forget, we also have an iOS app for the Innovation Engine. Search for the Innovation Engine on the App Store from your iOS devices. Last but not least, we're always striving to improve here on the Innovation Engine podcast, and we get asked often, who listens to it? We can see from our analytics that a pretty healthy number of you do listen, but raw download numbers don't do much to help us learn who out there is listening, what your day-to-day jobs are like, and what kinds of topics or which specific guests you might like to hear from. So if you'd like to help make the Innovation Engine a little bit better, please take a few short minutes out of your day and shoot me a quick email with some of that information. Will.Sherlin at 3PillarGlobal.com is my email address. Also, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn and message me there. Thanks as always for listening, and we'll see you next time.